This is Maine Currents, an ever-changing weekly mix of local independent news, views, and culture produced right here at WERU. I'm your host, Amy Brown. On today's show, we take you to a Women's Equality Day rally in Bangor, where speakers celebrated progress and looked to the work ahead. And then later in the community event spotlight this week, we talk with Asterix Tangway about the upcoming Fiber College of Maine event held in Searsport. The Women's Equality Day rally was held in commemoration of the 95th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which, after a hard-fought battle, allowed women in the U.S. to exercise their right to vote. It was sponsored by the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, Maine Women's Lobby, and the Maine People's Alliance. The MC was Abby Strout, a WERU volunteer and board member who works at the Mabel Wadsworth Center. She is also the producer of Reproductive Left, which is heard on the first Tuesday of each month here on WERU, produced in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth. Abby Strout. We're here today for two reasons. First is to celebrate. There's been a lot of progress in the past 95 years since our foremothers demanded the right to vote. Women can access birth control without being married and without their husband's permission. We can wear jeans, we can show our ankles, we can run for office, we can become lawyers, surgeons, and astronauts, we can marry our same-sex partners, and we can legally choose to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. Yet there's still so much more to be done to reach true equality, and in many ways, we are moving backwards instead of progressing. Which brings me to the second reason we're here tonight, to highlight five areas central to gender equality where we'd like to see major progress in the next five years when we reach the 100th anniversary of suffrage. And our amazing speakers tonight will focus on these topics. We wanna see equal representation. While women can run for office, we must do more to support women's leadership in order to create a government that reflects the people it serves. We want to see an end of of gender-based violence. As I said, women now can wear whatever we want, yet one in five college women will experience sexual assault and will be questioned about what they were wearing. We want to see an end of discrimination based on gender expression or identity and sexual orientation. It was amazing to celebrate marriage equality earlier this summer, but we also must stand in solidarity with our transgender sisters who experience violence and discrimination at alarming rates. We want equal pay for equal work, education, and experience. We cannot continue to undervalue the work women do. And finally, we want reproductive freedom. For far too many women in our country, the legal right to abortion care is meaningless. Speaking first tonight is Posey Cowan. She's a Blue Hill resident and great-granddaughter of suffragist Sophie Meredith, who established the the Virginia branch of the National Women's Party in 1915. So, for, for, uh, for 75 years, starting in 1848 and ending in 1920, women fought for the right to vote. Many dedicated their resources and some even risked their lives to get the vote. My great-grandmother was one of them. 
From 1910 to 1920, she worked nonstop with others, lobbying congressmen and educating the public. When those efforts failed, my great-grandmother was one of the women who demonstrated in front of the White House. They all wore these sashes. These are the colors of the National Women's um, Party. So uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting a little off track. Okay, so these teams of women, they were small, demonstrated every day in front of the White House while Congress was in session. And um, starting in June of 1917, President Wilson began to get embarrassed with these women standing there. And he had them arrested. And a total of 500 women during this period of 1917 to 1919 were arrested for demonstrating peacefully. 168 of them were put in prison despite the horrendous conditions. In November of 1917, the leader of these women, Alice Paul, was arrested. She went on a hunger strike. The prison officials jammed a tube down her nostrils so they could force down milk and eggs. They did this three times a day for three weeks. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine men doing this to women? This is the kind of sacrifice that some women made so that we could have the right to vote. Sadly, today, only 67% of women register to vote, and only half of these women actually vote. So if you do the math, two-thirds of the women in our country do not vote. My grandmother would be shocked if she knew that after 95 years when we won the vote, there are still only 20% women in Congress. Women still don't have equal pay. Women suffer daily from domestic violence, and they are losing their right to make their own health and reproductive choices. Maine is, on the, is one of the better states in the sense that it is one of the um, only three states in all of history that has sent three women to to the Senate. And there are programs here in Maine that encourage and train young women for leadership positions. A couple of them are the New Leadership Institute at the University of Maine, Maine's Women's Policy Center, and Hardy Girls. But we need to get more women into politics. Five years from now is the 100th anniversary of women winning the vote. Let's finish this battle. Let's not waste all the efforts that our courageous women before us made. Now it's our turn. Let's finish this battle. Thank you, Posey. Next, we have Katherine Kerr from Spruce Run Women Care Alliance, and she's the Advocacy Services Coordinator. Hello. 
Today we stand together to give thanks to our foremothers who worked tirelessly to give us the right to vote, which has shaped our history and has shaped all of us as women. However, I must acknowledge that we have a long way to go in the movement towards gender equality. Working at the Spruce Rum Women Care Alliance, the Domestic Abuse Resource Center that serves the Penobscot and Piscataquis County region, I know all too well that we have not reached true equality because violence perpetrated against women is a horrifying reality. I know that on average, more than three women each day are murdered by their intimate partners in the United States. About one in four women have reported violence at the hands of their boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. And that women make up 84% of the survivors of spousal abuse and 86% of the survivors of dating abuse. On average, one in five women in college will be sexually assaulted and women between the ages of 20 and 24 have the highest risk of experiencing intimate partner violence. These are terrifying numbers. These numbers, these national numbers are no different in the state of Maine. Last year, in one typical 24-hour period, 439 victims of abuse sought support at a Maine domestic abuse resource center. 210 of those people were living in an emergency shelter or transitional housing program. 113 of them were children and 97 were adults. That day, 113 hotline calls were answered in our state, which is about four calls or more per hour. These numbers are heartbreaking and unfortunately not shocking. Early on, girls are told to live in fear. We are told don't walk alone, don't walk at night, and look over your shoulders, hold keys between your fingers. We are told to cover up our skin, don't take that drink, wear a whistle around your neck. We are told to follow the rules and to live in fear and hope that in doing so, we will be safe. And if we don't, we are told that we're responsible for any violence perpetrated against us. We grow up to believe that it is inevitable that we will become one of those statistics. This reality is not equality. Women should not have to live in fear, and being a victim to abuse is not inevitable. We have seen change. For over two decades, we have had the Violence Against Women Act on the books. This is a law that has strengthened the response to survivors and helps fund numerous programs that work toward ending violence across our country. In our state, we have improved our criminal justice, child welfare, and healthcare response to survivors of abuse. We have thriving prevention programs that openly talk about healthy relationships and what unhealthy relationships look like. We are actively working to change our culture toward one of equality, but we know that we can't do it alone. We all must participate. I would like to challenge everyone here today to let our young men and women know that in the state of Maine, we will strive to end interpersonal violence. We want them to know that we will do this by creating a culture that will foster healthy and joyful relationships that values all people equally. 
and assure safety for victims and accountability for abusers. If we, are, if we all are active participants in this change, we will be one step closer to true gender equality. Thank you. Next, we have Davida Ammerman, who's a board member at the Maine People's Alliance and Sage Maine, and she also represents the Maine Trans Lobby. Thank you. Hello. My name is Davida Ammerman, and I would like to share my thoughts today with you on women's equality. We are here to celebrate the 95th anniversary of our being able to vote and all the hard work it took to get there. It's a day worth, worthy of celebration, and yet there is so much yet for us to do to address the many problems that, that we still face as women. As a transgender woman, women's equality is very important to me. It affects me, my wife, our daughter, and it affected my mother as well. I want to speak about the 19 transgender women who have been murdered so far this year in this country. But sometimes words fail me. I want to ask for a moment of silence, but I really feel like screaming. Because there were women, I want to scream about violence against women, domestic violence, economic violence, having our medical needs dictated by men, by politicians by insurance companies, and not being able to address our medical needs, misogyny, being forced by many injustices to live in poverty and to be dependent upon the state and the streets for survival. Because 18 of the 19 were trans women of color, I want to scream about the racism that is so blatant in this country, this society. The number of murders by blacks on white in this country is sickening. I want to scream about the short life expectancy of trans women of color. It is 35 years. Because the murders of transgender women regularly, murderers of transgender women regularly get away with it, either by plea of trans panic, which is an acceptable defense against defense argument in every state except California, or by law enforcement simply unwilling to do its job. I want to scream about justice. I want to scream about transgender women that are locked up in men's prison. Because the violence is being promoted and justified by politicians, church leaders throughout the world, I want to scream about genocide. I want to scream about the 40% suicide attempt rate among us. I want to scream about the 60% suicide attempt rate when we're faced with bullying, harassment, physical violence. Today we celebrate, but we must remember there's still so much work to do. Many issues, reproductive freedom, the ability to make our own decisions concerning our medical needs, access to competent medical care, maternity leave, equal earning, and 
equal learning opportunities, equal pay for equal work, the efforts of politicians to limit needed supportive social security services or to criminalize pregnant and parenting women, support of women in the caretaker role so they will be able to retire with dignity with social security benefits, affordable health care, education, job training and retirement for women, guaranteed, especially single moms, and so many more items we must address. We need to recognize and dismantle gender privilege, the racial privilege, the financial and economic privileges that keep women from being treated and respected as equals in the society. We, must, we need to love each other. We need to survive. Thank you. Next, we have Eliza Townsend. She's the executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby. Thank you, Abby. This is a phenomenal turnout, and I'm really proud to be here with you all. In 1978, the founders of the Maine Women's Lobby recognized that women will not have equality unless we're speaking for ourselves, we're advocating for ourselves. And so they founded the Women's Lobby and we work for freedom from violence, freedom from discrimination, access to the full range of healthcare services, and the issue that touches everything else, economic security. We still have not reached full equality today. For Maine to thrive, women must thrive. But for too many women and their families are not on the road to prosperity. 45,000 Maine children under the age of 18 are living in poverty today. One in five of our youngest children, those five years old and under, are living in poverty. By far, the majority of those children are living with a single mother. At the other end of our lives, the poverty rate for those over 65 is higher than the national average, and the poverty rate for seniors in western counties in northern, western and in down east Maine is 40% or more. Again, the majority of those seniors are women. That poverty rate is sadly not surprising. Most older Maine women in poverty end up there because of a lifetime of policies that have left them behind. Wage discrimination, low wage work, lack of paid leave or paid sick days to care for themselves and their family. Women in Maine earn just 80.6 cents for every dollar a man earns. That gap is far worse for women of color. For example, African-American women in Maine earn just 57.8 cents for every dollar made by a white man, which makes Maine one of the 10 worst states for wage equality for African-American women. But ending the wage gap matters for all women. It affects recent college graduates, those with disabilities, lesbians, and mothers. And because it accumulates over a lifetime, it affects our retirement benefits and our savings as well. The National Partnership for Women and Families found that women working full-time in Maine lose more than $1,760,000 because of the pay gap. That's money that women could be spending to help boost our economy, to help save for home ownership, or for their retirement. 
With the money an average woman in Maine loses due to wage inequality, she could purchase 71 more weeks of food, seven more months of mortgages or utility payments, 13 more months of rent, or 2,499 additional gallons of gas. People should be paid equitably for equal work, for equal education and experience. We need to stop undervaluing the work that women do and make sure that state and federal laws against discrimination are enforced. Congress is considering the Paycheck Fairness Act, which would prohibit retaliation against employees who make wage discrimination complaints and create a right to legal action for workers who face wage discrimination. It would help employers in implementing equal pay policies and enhance the investigation of wage discrimination claims. It's hard to move anything through Congress, but we must insist that our candidates and our elected leaders do the right thing. There are other solutions that can make a big difference. All jobs should pay at least enough to meet workers' basic needs. When our neighbors cannot afford to buy food, pay for a place to live, heat their homes, or cover other basic expenses, it hurts our whole community. Six in 10 minimum wage workers are women. That's why the Maine Women's Lobby worked so hard on the minimum wage increase that just passed in Portland, the first city in the Northeast to take such a momentous step. And we're very glad to see Bangor embark on a discussion about raising its minimum wage. It's why we support efforts to raise the statewide minimum wage so that all Mainers can see the benefit of decent wages. And it's why we continue to fight to ensure that tipped workers, who are overwhelmingly women, are included in all wage increases. An illness, the birth or adoption of a child, or the need to care for a sick family member can force any of us to take an extended leave from work. But only 12% of the U.S. workforce has access to paid leave. So millions of Americans struggle to meet our responsibilities both at home and at work. Women often step out of the workforce to care for their children and again for their aging parents, and we pay a financial penalty for the lack of paid family leave. There are answers. I urge Congress to pass the Family Act to effect change on a national scale. We could also create a state paid leave fund for Maine to provide temporary income for workers' leave through small employee payroll contributions. This has worked in three other states to date. All workers Full and part-time need access to paid leave because all employees should be able to take time to take care of their children and get them off to a healthy start, or to recover from an injury or an illness, or to care for sick loved ones without the fear of losing their job or being unable to pay their bills. These common sense policies would make significant progress in moving all Maine people forward on the road to prosperity. Other strategies include stronger protections for pregnant workers, access to affordable, quality early childhood programs, and ensuring that all workers can earn paid sick days, more than 180,000 Mainers today cannot by passing the Healthy Family Act. Clearly, there's still much to do. 95 years ago, women won the right to vote after a long-fought struggle. Today, women are one of the most coveted voter groups of voters. One way we can get closer to full equality is to insist that politicians who clamor for our votes in election years become champions for policies that reflect the realities of 21st century families. We must ask where they stand on the issues that matter for women's economic security, our health, our safety, and equality. We can educate our family, our neighbors, and our friends. We know the tools that will move women and our families towards prosperity, like those suffragettes of the past 
we can succeed if we're steadfast. Thank you. Thank you, Eliza. You're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. Coming up, we're going to be talking with one of the organizers of the upcoming Fiber College in Searsport, and through the magic of the Internet, we'll do a radio show and tell. But first, we return to the second half of the Women's Equality Day rally that was held in Bangor last week on the 95th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which allowed women in the U.S. to exercise their right to vote. Next, we have Andrea Irwin, who is the Executive Director of Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. Good evening. I want to start by talking to you about a woman named Mabel Sign Wadsworth, our namesake and one of our five founders. Mabel was born in 1910, so right around the time that the U.S. women's suffrage movement was taking shape and gaining momentum. Mabel became a nurse in the maternity ward in Rochester, New York, where she saw women there giving birth to five, six, seven children with no real knowledge of their bodies or how birth control worked. She quickly realized that women needed that information and that if they could control their reproductive health, they could have control in other areas of their lives. Fortunately for us, she later moved with her family to the Bangor area and became active in the community, helping to start a family planning organization. She went to the homes where she saw cloth diapers hanging on the clotheslines and went door to door to try to talk to these women about birth control. She just wanted them to have the information so that they could make the best decisions for themselves, so they could stop having children if they didn't want to and could take care of the children they already had. Mabel Wadsworth Center was created in 1984 because our founders understood how important it was to empower women to control their reproductive lives, to have access to birth control and well woman care and prenatal care, and yes, abortion care. So for more than 30 years, Mabel Wadsworth Center has provided high quality women's health care and education about sexual and reproductive health right here in our community, and we've stood up for women's health. And today, just like millions of other Americans and hopefully most of you, we stand alongside Planned Parenthood. <laughs> so, there's a gentleman running for president, and his name's Jeb Bush. He said that Planned Parenthood isn't actually doing women's health. What does, what does he think then that pap smears and sexually transmitted infection tests and breast exams are exactly? In fact, nationwide, Planned Parenthood has provided nearly 400,000 pap tests, nearly half a million breast exams, and nearly 4.5 million STI tests and treatment, including HIV tests, in the year 2013. This summer has brought out the most extreme fringes of the anti-abortion movement, and the potential impact on women's health is devastating. Five states, including our neighboring state of New Hampshire, have already voted to cut funding to Planned Parenthood. This is a watershed moment in the reproductive rights movement and in the long march toward women's equality. So in line with our theme of five areas to focus on to improve women's equality, I'd like to highlight the five aspects of reproductive rights to work on so that by the time we gather here in five years for the 100th anniversary of Women's Equality Day, 
we will truly be celebrating. First and foremost, let's level the playing field so that all women have access to abortion care. This means repealing the federal Hyde Amendment so that Medicaid funds cover abortion care. that was introduced this summer and co-sponsored by Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. It's called the Equal Access to Abortion Coverage Act, or the Each Woman Act. Let's stop discriminating against poor women and give them the same choices that women with means have. Second, let's improve access to birth control, especially the highly effective long-acting methods like IUDs. This is basic preventive health care and should be covered for all women, period. or Obamacare, many more women have access to birth control and have saved $1.4 billion in 2013 alone. And a program in Colorado provided free birth control to low-income women succeeded in cutting the rate of unintended teen pregnancies by 40% and cut the abortion rate by 35%. Truly staggering. And yet states are now cutting these very programs that lead to these kinds of public health advances. It's just senseless. Third, we must stand up to any and all restrictions being placed on abortion and access to abortion care. Since 2010, there have been 282 state restrictions placed on abortion, yet abortion is still safer than childbirth. When we impose waiting periods or forced ultrasounds or other restrictions that have nothing to do with women's health or science, we are saying to that woman, we don't trust you. During her judicial confirmation hearing before the U.S. Senate in 1993, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and her dignity. When the government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a full adult human responsible for her own choices. There's a reason she has her own hashtag. Let's trust women. Women know what's best. And fourth, <laughs> speaking of the notorious RBG, which is her hashtag, let's make sure that our senators and the next person that we elect to be our president know how important the federal courts and the Supreme Court is to protecting reproductive rights. Yeah. <laughs> It's highly likely that the Supreme Court will hear a case next year challenging the Texas abortion restrictions that have led to more than half the state's clinics shutting down. Finally, and perhaps most important, let's stop shaming women for getting abortions and stop stigmatizing the people who provide abortion care. about the need for abortion in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our schools, and in our communities. Nearly one in three women will have an abortion in her lifetime. There aren't women who have abortions and women who have children. These are the same women at different points in their lives. Let's support all women, no matter what their reproductive choice is. If a woman wants to have an abortion or if she wants to parent, no matter what, let's make those options real for her. Let's support funding for childcare and early childhood development and TANF 
and public programs that provide support to people with low income who are raising their kids in poverty. Let's be pro-child and pro-family and pro-people. That's what truly being pro-life means. Because all women's lives matter, no matter what their choices. These are big, big challenges, and none of this will be easy, but I ask each of you to take action. By coming to this rally, you've shown that you care about women's equality, but ask yourself, what more can you do? What can you do next? There are several organizations represented here tonight, including ours, that rely heavily on volunteers. Gloria Steinem said, the future depends entirely on what each of us does every day. There's so much work to be done, but I believe it can be done and it must be done. Thank you, Andrea. Next, we have Councillor Gibran Graham of Bangor. Good evening. First, I'd like to start by giving a proclamation from the city of Bangor, proclaiming August 26, 2015, as Women's Equality Day in the city of Bangor, whereas women contributed in equal measure to the founding and building of this country, this great state, and our city from the earliest days of settlement, and whereas women's rights are civil and human rights, and whereas the first women's rights convention in American history was held in Seneca Falls, New York, in 1848, when over 300 women and men came together to protest the mistreatment of women in social, economic, political, and religious life. And whereas the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution was ratified on August 26, 1920, granting women the right to vote 72 years after Seneca Falls. And whereas by joint resolution of the United States Congress in 1971, August 26th of each year has been designated as Women's Equality Day, a symbol of the continued fight for equal rights. And whereas the American women's suffrage movement is a lasting affirmation of our country's democratic promise, re-emphasizing the importance of the most fundamental democratic values, the right to vote, and the possibility of peaceful yet revolutionary political change. And whereas today we look back on all that women have endured in the effort for equal rights and thank them, and whereas our foremothers fought for enfranchisement in the hope that future generations of men and women would work and vote for policies that create a better world for everyone regardless of gender. Now therefore, I, Gibran Graham, on behalf of Nelson E. Durgan, Mayor of the City of Bangor, on behalf of the City Council and the citizens of Bangor, who hereby proclaim August 26, 2015, as Women's Equality Day in the City of Bangor, and urge all citizens to recognize this observance on the 95th anniversary of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, and to help assure that these rights and privileges are available to all citizens equally. Today we celebrate women's suffrage and the achievements of women the world over in establishing equal rights. But we must also recognize how far we have to go, especially in places where women are still oppressed, mutilated, undereducated, if at all, and devalued. Here in the U.S. we still have many issues that we need to tackle. We've heard about many of those tonight, and they include pay equity, paid sick leave, quality childcare, and these are not just women's issues, they are economic issues and they build or break all of us. In 2016, my daughter, who's here tonight, will be able to vote for the first time. I'm pleased that she has the right 
which other women fought for her to have. My hope is that she will fulfill the promise of the hard work and do work of her own to leave the world a better place for those that come after her. And I'm proud to say that she has already shown that nothing will stand in her way. I like to think... And I'd like to think that I and everyone else owe all the strong women in this community that have helped to raise her as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Councillor Graham. And thank you to all of our speakers tonight. I'm going to close by bringing us back to celebration. While there's so much work to be done, we must remember that there's a huge network of committed activists, advocates, and volunteers whose work often goes unrecognized. So let's celebrate the abortion providers and clinic workers in states like Alabama, Texas, and North Dakota, who despite threats and unnecessary regulations, show up every day to provide women with the care they deserve. Let's celebrate the women who spend countless hours in state houses across the country educating legislators on the importance of paid sick leave, equal pay, and access to reproductive health care. Let's celebrate the bold and courageous women of the Black Lives Matter movement who know that justice will not be obtained without disruption. Let's celebrate the compassionate volunteers at local domestic violence resource centers and sexual assault hotlines who offer support to women during some of the most difficult times in their lives. And finally, let's celebrate the women of the movements before us, the rebellious second wave feminists who weren't afraid to say abortion on demand without apology, and the suffragists who asked a question we must continue to ask, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? This is Maine Currents on WERU. The Women's Equality Day rally that you just heard took place in Bangor last week. It was sponsored by the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, Maine Women's Lobby, and Maine People's Alliance. It was recorded by Abby Strout, who was also the MC. You can catch her show, Reproductive Left, which is produced by WERU in collaboration with the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, on the first Tuesday of each month at 4.30 here on WERU. And up next, we're spotlighting an upcoming event with some radio show and tell. So if you're near a computer and you'd like to see some photos of the items that we're going to be discussing in this interview, just log on to the WERU Facebook page. Go to facebook.com slash WERUFM. And if not, don't worry. You'll still get a great sense of what we're talking about from my guest descriptions. Astrid Tangway is the director of Fiber College of Maine, an event that's held annually at the Searsport Shores, a campground that she and her husband own. We talked about what Fiber College is and why it draws people from all over to the coast of Maine each year. Fiber College is nine years old this year, and it was based on an idea from Florida called Gord College. And people gathered on this farm and they did things with gourds, and there were hundreds of people that did it. I had just come back from a UNESCO conference in Quebec City, and it was all about ecotourism and how far the United States was lagging behind with 
authentic destination-based tourism that celebrates what's really special about each population. So Maine and Fiber have gone back as long as Maine has been populated by Europeans, and we wanted to build on that. We knew that we had the basket makers, but we also had quilters and rug hookers, surface design, some of the top weavers of coverlets in the 1800s all over the United States were from Maine. So we had a rich tradition to draw on and just decided that because the campground looked really good in September, but we had no guests, it was a great time to start bringing people in. So we put a call out and 40 classes came to be nine years ago. And we're trying to keep it basically the same size today because what we want is to develop community and to develop a sense of real artistic quality on a whole range of things. So if you can string two things together, then we're defining it as fiber. So you had 40 classes, is that what you said? We did, we had wow. 40 classes How nine years ago. I think we had 125 students the first year. Now we're up to about 250 students. So we've wow. about doubled it. And it takes, uh, is it a week long or a, th a three day weekend? When we first started, we did it as a three day weekend. Now we've expanded to do it Wednesday through Sunday. And we do master classes Wednesday and Thursday. They're more intense. And then Friday through Sunday are all of the shorter classes with demonstrations and facilitated lunches. So what are some of the classes that are going to be offered this year? Well, in some of the master classes, we're doing something like a spirit basket that's being done by Pamela Odysseus Cunningham, and it's a traditional Penobscot Indian basket. Then on the other end of things, we're doing pattern fitting and how to make a dress pattern fit your exact body measurements. We're also doing natural dye workshops and weaving workshops. And do people come and attend just one of these, or do you have a lot of multi-talented people who end up finding several of these different kinds of things that they can participate in? I think that the people that come fall into every one of those camps. There's the very serious artist who devotes their life to doing their artwork, and they come with specific things to learn, maybe because they're following a master teacher. And then you've got others that have never done anything before, and the idea of being outside and taking a class and painting silk scarves is really exciting. And then they stay at your campground, the Searsport Shore campground, for the time that they're there. Actually, Amy, we're really proud that they stay at the campground, but they also fill all of the bed and breakfasts in the lodgings. Wow. Last year, we filled all of Waldo County's uh, accommodations. Wow. So this is really contributing to the uh, creative economy, the local economy of Searsport. We've been talking a lot in the last couple of years about the alternatives as uh, in Bucksport and Searsport, the economies undergo a shift or in the case of Searsport where there's sort of like one plan after another to build some gigantic thing there and you're doing something that sounds like it's been very successful over a number of years of keeping things very local and, and grassroots. That's so what we're proud of. This is something that has grown from a three-day event to a five-day event and could get bigger if we wanted to go that way. We just aren't sure. But it's real quality money coming in. When we run the statistics of the students that come, at Fiber College itself, they spend an average of $575. But when we talk to them and our exit surveys, they spend over $1,400 of the time that they're in Searsport area.
And the public can come in and check these things out on, is it Friday evening that it's open for people to come and see what people have been making? Yeah, there's a couple of things going on. New this year, we're going to do a maker's market. And Friday night from 5 to 7, anybody that wants to set up a $10 table can come in and put out whatever it is they make or whatever supplies they've accumulated that they don't want anymore. It's free to the public. We're hoping hundreds of people are going to attend. The steel drum band is going to be coming in from Blue Hill to perform, and we've got some other fiddlers coming up. There's going to be fair food, and we're lighting the grounds with tiki torches. So we hope it's going to be a real festival, just celebrate shopping moment. And then all the rest of the time, from Friday through Sunday, there's scheduled 45-minute demonstrations. They start at 11 and go until 5. Those demonstrations are free and open to the public. We ask a $10 gate fee to come in, and that allows you to spend the entire day. There's food booths, there's organic gardens, there's walks down at the beach. There's facilitated lunches, which is new for us too, where we've asked a professional artist to host a lunch table each day on a topic anywhere from the independence of raising your own fiber animals and living off your art to where you find inspiration through travel. And once you've come in through the gates, that's all open to you. We're talking with Astrid Tangway, director of Fiber College of Maine, an annual event held at Searsport Shores Campground. It's kicking off next Wednesday, September 9th, and runs through the weekend. You can view the items that we're talking about today on WERU's Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash WERUFM. And you're going to have a film showing, too, the uh, first public showing of Alice Seeger's documentary that she made about the Fiber College, correct? Right. Well, it's not really about the Fiber College. It's about the G's Bend women that came last year. Last year was exciting for us because we facilitated the women of G's Bend, Alabama, coming up and sharing their quilts with the Northeast. It's the first time they'd ever been this far north. And there were about 250 women that participated in their classes. And through the course of talking with them after their classes and through the winter time, we were really struck by how much exchange had happened, not just through the quilt making itself, but through the gospel singing and a different way of looking at the world that is very much Southern Alabama that we don't get to feel here. And all of that was enough to inspire Alice to want to make a documentary. And she spent the year doing interviews, and there's going to be a show-and-tell. People bring their own quilts that they finished that were inspired by the classes. So it's a chance to see what other people have done and show off your own work. And what's that going to be? That's going to be Friday night at 7 o'clock down in the campground. Is there a website set up for all of this? There is. It's www.fibercollege.org. All right. And we're going to put a photo up on our Facebook page. Listeners who want to check out some of this handiwork, uh, well, uh, there's going to be a photo, at least a couple photos up there. But let's talk about these items that are in the photo that I'm posting, the items that you brought with you today, and then people can go to the Facebook page and see them. There's a beautiful little basket here to start with. This basket is done by Pamela Odysseus. And if you look at it, it has four corners and the four corners represent the four elements and the four compass points. The colors that are dyed in the middle band are all significant to the Penobscot Indian tradition. Then it's woven with sweet grass, and you see this little tuft, or you'll see it in the picture, it's meant as a sponging stick. 
And then, Amy, if you look on the inside, there's everything from a bundle of healing herbs to a woven dragonfly. And Pamela tells the story of how the dragonfly was chosen by the entire animal community as being the most beautiful creature on earth. So that'll be one of the stories that she teaches as she goes through her two-day workshop. And her workshop's going to be on... Wednesday, Wednesday and, and Thursday. Thursday. Part of the Master Series. Yes, yeah. yes. For anybody who's done a basket before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, obviously a beginner, someone doesn't know anything about it, this is not where you're going to start. This no, is very no, intricate. This is advanced. That's something that you definitely yeah. want. But we have silk screening classes and natural dye classes that anybody who's never touched fabric and paint together would come out with successful projects and a different way of looking at clothes from the Goodwill or different projects they might want to make and personalize themselves. Start seeing things as a canvas. You're uh, holding a bag here. Is this something that somebody silk screened? Yes. Silk screened and then took a sewing class and learned how to put the zipper in and line the pouch. And then this doll has a a china doll top and it looks like it's meant to contain something. It's actually a pin cushion. Oh, that's a pin cushion. And it's I brought big. it along because one of our instructors is a very, very accomplished needleworker. And this is an example of what you can do once you've taken the beginning class of wool applique. Mm. Take the same stitches and do something as complicated as this porcelain doll. And this larger basket that you have here. Tell me about this one. We were so inspired by the G's Bend quilters that we started looking around to what we had for interesting, authentic crafts here in Maine that we might not be exposed to. And we came across the Somali Bantu population that lives in Lewiston-Auburn, and they make a market basket. It's a beautiful hand-woven basket that's plated grasses that they bring in from Kenya. So we asked them to teach the class, and that has been really interesting to see who wanted to take it. But because their culture is so different to what we're used to seeing here in Down East Maine, we asked them to do a Wednesday night dinner. And the group of women agreed to cook us an authentic wedding celebration dinner and then do a a fashion show for us. And once we started seeing what the fashion show involved, then we started talking about henna painting. So two of the younger women, the college-age women, are going to set up a henna booth at Fiber College during all of the Shoppers Boulevard hours, and they'll be doing it during the Maker's Market, too. Wow. So a lot of this is sort of a la carte. You can come to one class. You can come one evening. If you're not even taking a class, you can come to to shop or to see the demonstrations. You don't have to come and stay for the entire thing. No. The word college kind of throws people off. We intended the word college to be a gathering of people who are interested in the same thing. And if that just means that you have time to come for a two-hour class, you're more than welcome. But once you're here for a two-hour class, if you want to bring your hand project and sit in the gardens or sit at the beach, we hope you'll do that because there's so many other people gathered. And one of the best comments I heard last year was, this woman said, it's the only place I can go where I can talk about yarn until I'm blue and nobody rolls their eyes like they're bored. (laughs) You know, Amy, there's another class that I'm really excited about. It's called Color and Inspiration. And it's put on by a woman who worked for Panatone for years and years doing color trends and forecasting for the future. 
And what she teaches is taking a piece of art that you like, whether it's an oil painting or a graphic design, and how to understand the colors that are in that picture and get the proportions right so that you can then take it and weave it or knit it or paint it or do anything being inspired by the colors but not trying to replicate it. Hmm. I'm really excited that she's coming up. Wow, wow. And you had mentioned when we were talking about setting up this interview, I told you I am probably one of the worst people to do this interview because I don't know anything about any of this. Fortunately, uh, you're able to explain it really well even to a novice. But you had mentioned a um, type of needle uh, uh, felting that you yeah. said would be good for beginners too. So there's things that people can jump in and learn if they don't have any of these skills at all to start with? There's so many classes on the website that say open to everyone. And needle felting, what you're talking about, I always think of it as voodoo work because you take what looks like cotton candy, it's just dyed wool, lay it out, and in one class you learn to make a cardinal bird out of it, in another one you do a three-dimensional garden goddess. But basically you form the cotton candy and then use a barb needle and stick with it, and it creates a solid mass. It's a great activity for any age at all, and it's something that you can take with you, and it's very inexpensive. Hmm. And do you have a lot of, you say any age at all, do you have a lot of kids show up? Or there, is it a family-friendly thing, or is this mostly the artist or the craftsperson in the family comes and I takes think, the classes alone? I think that it's very family-friendly, but it's specific family-friendly to children who have already shown an aptitude or an interest because it takes a lot of sustained interest. It takes three hours is probably the shortest class. It's yeah. focus and the ability to manipulate whatever tools you have to do the class. Mm -hmm. So every parent knows their own child. Uh, we see a lot of grandparents coming with grandchildren or aunts coming with nieces or nephews. One class that would really fit is the chain mail class. Now, Steve Schurz comes up from Maryland and does chain mail, which is interlinked woven pieces of metal. And you can make bracelets and necklaces and all that sort of thing. And if a child is able to manipulate a pair of pliers, he or she could come out with something just as exciting as a 50-year-old accomplished metalsmith. Hmm. Wow. So if people have questions about this, they can contact you through the website? Definitely. There's an email link at www.fibercollege.org, or they can give me a call at the campground, which is 207-548-6059. I think that the maker's market is really the big thing, and we hope everybody from every direction will come and join us that night. I, I hope the tiki torches burn really bright, and we see some really exciting things because there's lots of people that make a few neat things, not enough to put on an Etsy store, not enough to sell to a gallery, but definitely enough to offer to sale to the public for just one night. Or maybe ins just inspire people to try something themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. We're all about inspiration. Our tagline is educating creative expression. Mm -hmm. And that's really where we want to focus our attention. Great. Thank you for coming in today, Astrid. Thank you, Amy. That was Astrid Tangway, director of Fiber College of Maine, an annual event held at the Sears Port Shores Campground. It opens next week on Wednesday, September 9th and runs through the weekend. There's more information on their Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash fiber.college, and their website, fibercollege.org. They also have a phone number you can call for more information. That's 548-6059.
And that's Main Currents for today. Main Currents is an ever-changing weekly mix of news, views, and culture produced right here at WERU. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Please send any story ideas and suggestions for this show or any of WERU's locally produced news and public affairs shows to us at news at weru.org. If you email them to us, we can share them with the other producers more easily. Again, that's news at weru.org. Stay tuned for more independent public affairs and great music here on your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org.